Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, good morning, Elevation. It's good to be with you in this online space once again. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to doing some normal things that I haven't done in a long time. And one of those things is going to a movie theater. When was the last time you were in a movie theater? Some of you maybe have gone in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing, hopefully, the new James Bond flick. Uh, this is the last one that Daniel Craig is going to be starring in. And so I thought that'd be a good one to go back to the theaters for. But in truth, um, while this is Daniel Craig's fifth movie, this is, he is far from the only actor to play the James Bond role. In fact, I can remember years ago when Pierce Brosnan was James Bond and they talked about this new guy coming in and doing the role. I was like, it'll never be the same. They'll never be as good. And they have been really good. And of course, there have been many people who have played this iconic role over the years. Now, of course, the questions are now the speculation about who is next. Who will be the next person to be 007? An actor can embody a character and then be replaced by another actor. A musician can embody a genre of music. Uh, a head of state can embody an entire nation. But each of these is still only representative of something bigger than themselves. When it comes to Christian faith, Jesus is not someone who can be replaced by someone else and then you still have Christian faith. Jesus is the rock solid foundation and the only one who could possibly have that central role in the faith. When all is said and done, at the center of Christian faith stands Jesus. Now, this may be the most obvious thing of all for a pastor to say, but as I was thinking about what I wanted to share over the course of the next few weeks, the only thing that came to mind was Jesus, to focus our attention on the one who was and is and is to come. Now, Jesus was a profound teacher. He was a miracle worker. He was compassionate, insightful, and wise beyond his years. But he is not just someone from the past for us to reflect on. The four accounts of his life that open the New Testament, what we call the Gospels, were written so that we can know him today. My idea over the next four weeks is to walk through these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, somewhat chronologically. So it'll go like this. This morning, we're going to take a look at the few first few chapters of Matthew in the beginning of Jesus' life, and then we'll take a look at the next chunk in Mark, and then the next chunk in Luke, and then the final chunk of his life at the final chunk of the Gospel of John. And it won't necessarily work seamlessly and perfect, but I think it's going to give us a good chance of understanding who Jesus is for us today. In my final few weeks as your pastor, I would like to leave our community with a portrait of Jesus that reminds us of what all of this is all about. This church, this world, this life, and this faith. Now, I've always believed that the best case scenario for a preacher is that each and every sermon is heard in the context of every other sermon that has been before it and every other sermon that will come after it. That's the best case scenario. So everything that I would say would be in the proper context. Now, that's gonna be even more essential this month because each week we're gonna be talking about just a piece of who Jesus is and they really need to be understood together. So I was thinking about it like an artist painting a portrait. 
you begin by maybe making a sketch or an outline and then you add some color and then you add a little more detail and finally you bring the image to life. And that's what I hope is going to happen by the end of this four-week series. But let's start at the beginning. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now for modern readers, I can't imagine a worse way to start off what we might categorize as a biography than to jot down a list of who begat who. The most recent biography that I read was Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land. And this is the first kind of line or two of this book. Of all the rooms and halls and landmarks that make up the White House and its grounds, it was the West Colonnade that I loved best. For eight years, that walkway would frame my day, a minute-long open-air commute from home to office and back again. I'm like, that's how you start like a biography. That is how you start a memoir of someone's life. Compare that then to the opening passage of Matthew's Gospel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, and it goes on. It goes on like that for 14 verses. I'll stop, but that's how Matthew's gospel begins. Now, in fairness, the Gospels were not intended to be biographies the way that we are used to thinking about them. Each one was crafted with a specific theme and point of emphasis that would contribute to the theological understanding of the early Christian communities. So, all kidding aside, Matthew's opening is actually quite profound in a number of ways. So Matthew 1 verse 17, we read that thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now ancient people loved their numbers, so Matthew taps into that to drive his point home. Seven was the perfect number, so the fact that there happened to be 14 generations between these significant figures, Matthew was like, look at this, it's like double perfection. And, in order, and what he does is that he sets them up to see like there is something very significant that has been happening over all of these generations. And with all of the things that the Jewish people had lost, they clung fiercely to their hope that God would fulfill his promises to Abraham and that he would establish a new leader on David's throne. So right from the start, Matthew presents Jesus as the rightful heir to David's kingdom, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, and the one who would once and for all restore everything that they had lost in exile. Jesus, the Messiah, a title that means anointed one and is often translated Christ. Jesus was God's answer to the prayers of his people. They had not been forgotten after all. Now just pause for a moment. Can you identify with Matthew's readers or what? I mean, maybe you haven't been longing for a new king or a promised land, but you've been longing for something. And if I could hazard a guess, I would wager that on some days you wonder whether you've been forgotten, whether your prayers are being heard at all. I was reflecting on this and the lyrics of a song that came out a couple of years ago by Zach Williams and Dolly Parton come to mind. In the waiting, in the searching, in the healing and the hurting, like a blessing buried in the broken pieces. Every minute, every moment where I've been and where I'm going, even when I didn't know it or couldn't see it, there was Jesus. 
And so tucked in this unassuming introduction, Matthew answers the question that was burning in the hearts of his people and his readers, just like it burns in our own hearts today. Now today is Halloween. Among other things, the day before Christmas music and displays are socially acceptable. Now I do understand that some of you think differently. A member of our congregation sent me an email this past week with a link to a Christmas song. I responded to say thank you, but I will not listen to this right now. It is like the middle of October. Um, so yeah, the idea is that once Halloween is in the past, once November begins, then we can slowly begin like a ramp up to Christmas. So I feel somewhat guilty reading this next passage, but again, if we're starting at the beginning of Matthew, we gotta go here. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Sure, it's a Christmas passage, but it's just so much more than that. Understandably, Mary's fiance Joseph wasn't impressed, but before he could go through with his plan to divorce her quietly, he received an angelic visit that set his mind at ease. To avoid stealing all the thunder of Advent, I will keep my commentary on this passage brief. But I wanna read verses 22 and 23 because they matter a lot. All of this, the angelic visit, the virgin pregnancy, Joseph's announcement, all of this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, now there is just so much packed in these two little verses. If ancient folks loved num like numbers, well then they loved making connection between the words spoken by prophets of old and what was happening in the world around them. And Matthew gives them more of this than any other gospel writer by a long shot, and all to demonstrate that God had always been pointing toward Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of every hint and every whisper tucked in the pages of their sacred texts. Now the other gem revealed in verse 23 is the name attributed to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So not only had God responded by sending the Messiah to right the wrongs of the world, which is what the Jews were anticipating, but in some inexplicable way, God was actually present with them in the person of Jesus. Again, you're bound to hear more about this in December, so let's keep things rolling. A few years pass. Matthew chapter two, Joseph took the child and his mother and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And there's that word again, fulfilled. And since fulfillment is Matthew's primary focus, he again skips over several years. Now, again, if this were, were a biography, it'd be frustrating because we wanna know what was Jesus' childhood like? We wanna know what was he like as a teenager and a young adult? but we don't learn that. Instead, Matthew skips ahead in chapter three to when Jesus is about 30 years old. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, John the Baptist appears like a flash on the page and disappears almost as quickly. Can you think about someone in your life who may not have played a major role, but who had a profound impact on how your life unfolded? Maybe a teacher, maybe a youth leader, maybe a godparent or some other quasi family member who took a special interest in you. Someone who seemed more interested in your success than in their own. Well, that was the role that John played in Jesus' life. Let me read from Matthew chapter three, verses 13 to 17. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this in the message that God's work, putting things right all these centuries is coming together right now in this baptism. And in case John the Baptist or anyone else standing on the banks of the Jordan River was unsure whether to trust this unknown Nazarene fellow, God spoke words of affirmation and blessing. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so it was with these words still echoing in his ears and in his heart that Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I cannot read these words in scripture without my mind going back to a memory of a time when Melissa and I and some other friends uh, flew out to Seattle for a friend's wedding. Uh, we ended up uh, going downtown Seattle and we did the things that you just have to do when you're downtown Seattle. We went to the public market. We watched them throwing the fish back and forth. We went to the very first Starbucks location. Um, and as we were walking down the street downtown, there was this man who was, I would assume, experiencing homelessness who called out to us. And what he called out was, repent, repent, you bleeping sinners. And we just kind of kept walking. And I was like, we're all looking at each other going, what just happened? What, what was that about? I mean, we all love Jesus. Like, why is he yelling at us like this? When we think about this word repent, sometimes that's what we think. Some angry preacher coming at us, but it's actually a very important word. It's not one that we use a whole lot these days. So Dallas Willard in his kind of translation or paraphrase of this passage helps us to kind of get the gist of what Jesus was saying. He says, rethink your life in light of the fact that the kingdom of the heavens is now open to all. That's what this idea of repent is. It's like, however you're living, whatever you believe, whatever you're hoping for, whatever you're striving for, just like lay it all down and rethink what your life is really all about. The mess this is the message that Jesus would soon begin to spread across the entire Judean countryside. But before he got too far, he gathered a small group of followers to journey with him. And we read about them at Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I don't know if you had a chance to tune in to the series, The Chosen. Uh, you can look it up online and download an app to watch this program. And it is like a, a mini series about the life of Jesus as he's calling his disciples to follow after him. If you have not been watching this yet, you just need to. It is inspiring, it is good quality stuff, and it helps to just kind of put yourself in a place of what would it have been like to be among this group of people that Jesus called to follow him around and begin this global transformation that we are a part of all these years later. So what Jesus did with this ragtag bunch of hesitant followers was the same thing that we try to do week in and week out. We try to understand what this kingdom means in real life, in everyday life. Now in 2008, 
I actually spent 11 months teaching what I'm about to provide a brief overview of in the next 10 minutes. I say that to say, prepare to be underwhelmed. My kids have this thing that they like mocking the way that I quote certain authors more than others. And every once in a while, one of them will, will name one of them and then they kind of go back and forth trying to name as many of these like key authors as they can. One of them is Dallas Willard. I've already quoted him this morning and I will again. And I have so many time over the years. His book, The Divine Conspiracy, I would put as definitely one of the top five most influential books on my understanding of Christian faith, on how I practice and live my own faith, and how I teach what it means to live in light of the fact that the kingdom of the heavens is open to all. And so he writes that the souls of human beings are left to shrivel and die on the plains of life because they are not introduced into the environment for which they were made, the living kingdom of eternal life. He's like, we don't understand how we're supposed to live this life. But then he goes on, and this book is an incredible example. It's essentially a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm gonna talk about for the next few minutes. It's this beautiful unraveling of this because Willard is saying that we need to understand what this life is meant, how this meant was, life was meant to be lived if we want to experience life to its fullest. Next week, we're gonna talk about the significance of the things that Jesus did, but this morning the focus is on what he said and in the pattern of his teaching. And so what I'd like to do is start off by reading the beginning uh, of, Matthew's, or, uh, of Matthew's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, a passage known as the Beatitudes. So this is Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's like Jesus is saying to the people all along, you have been told what it means to live a blessed life and your hopes and dreams, they've all been tied to that vision. But I'm here to tell you that there is another way to live. So allow me to give you just a glimpse of the kingdom that you've been waiting for all along. So to this ragtag bunch and the crowds that started to gather around this as yet unknown rabbi, Jesus proclaimed, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These were not the religious elites he was talking to. These were not the movers and shakers of their generation. These were ordinary people like you and me. And he says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Such significant words. And it's hard for your soul to shrivel and die when you believe words like this about yourself. But Jesus wasn't exactly starting from scratch here. The people he was teaching, much like every one of us today, already had a picture of what it meant to live a faithful life. These are the rules you follow. These are the things you avoid. This is what you do. These are the things you believe. 
So Jesus couldn't just start with a blank canvas. He had to take what they already believed, how they were already living, and help them shift their focus. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And there is that word again. Jesus had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, everything that they had always been pointing to, and he had come to usher in the kingdom of God. So he had to do some correcting. And this is what he does next as his teaching on roles. He says, okay, so you've heard that it was said. You've, you've been taught, this has been passed down to you. This is how you assume a life of faith looks like. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I would go a little further and say, you shouldn't even be angry with someone because anger really is gonna be the root of murder anyways. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, again, Yes, for sure, but I'm telling you, don't even lust after another person. You have heard that it said, take an eye for an eye. If someone wrongs you this way, you just pay them back what they deserve. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, there is a way of life that is fitting for God's children. And this is one of the primary points of emphasis in Jesus' teaching. This is the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that we hear the word love. And it is shown to be the key of having a righteousness that surpasses even that of the Pharisees. Willard again says that Jesus does not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was. To be as he was, permeated with love, then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in him. That's an interesting thing to get our heads around. Jesus is trying to shape our hearts. He's trying to shape our character, who we actually are, so that the way we live out our faith flows naturally from that center. As we'll discover next week, while Jesus was no doubt a master orator, the life he lived in full view of both his supporters and detractors always pointed back to this foundational guiding principle of love. Now, it's time for me to wrap up this introduction to Jesus through Matthew's eyes, and I'd like to end where Jesus chose to end this most famous sermon of his. In chapter 7, and verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There is a paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. Neither rigid religiosity nor flabby faith will do. You can do all the right things, but if your heart is off, your life will be off. And you can have the best heart in the world, but if you don't do the right things, your life will equally miss the mark. And so Jesus told a bit of a story at the end of this sermon. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus' teaching always came with an invitation and it continues to come with an invitation. Do you trust me? Are you ready to build your life with me as the foundation? 
That's the question he was asking that original crowd. It's the question he asked his original followers. And they're the questions that he asks us today. Will we trust him? We will build our lives on the foundation that he has laid. The end of Matthew 7, we read, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I'm sure that Jesus didn't really care if they were amazed or not. What he cared about is would they begin to live the life the way that it had always been created to live it. We're going to dismiss in a moment. I'm going to close our time in prayer. But before we do, I just want to let you know that typically on a Sunday following the service, we would have a time of discussion where we would be able to connect with one another and engage in conversation about this morning's theme. But this is a uh, Sunday that is marked as a neighbors group Sunday. And so many, if not all of our neighbors groups will be gathering together in some kind of capacity. And so we're leaving the space open for that instead of the normal discussion groups. If you are part of a neighbors group and you're not familiar with this, then make sure that you check your email. You might've missed a message along the way. And if you're not part of a neighbors group, feel free to reach out. Uh, there'll be some contact info in the comment section. And we'd love to let you know an opportunity for you to plug in with some people today. But to close our time, let's turn to God in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that there is this beautiful portrait of Jesus that begins to unfold for us right from the beginning of the New Testament. It's my prayer for us that we would begin to see you in the fullness of who you are, that as we hear these messages, as we reflect on the things that you taught, that we would realize that you are still teaching them to us today by your Spirit. I pray that we would respond the way that you invited us to respond, to build our house on that firm foundation. Give us the faith that we need to do this. Be with us as we head out into the day and the week ahead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Peace to you.